the probably the biggest thing was uh, learning about terracotta from Mike Rother, and then having an endless set of uh, coffee discussions at first where he was trying to convince me that he had come up with something worthwhile and different. And mostly I had been learning from Toyota and sort of my acid test is Toyota do, do it. And if they, and they didn't do Kata and Mike on his own seemed to make this up. So I was skeptical, but over time it shifted to, you know, having a real dialogue and learning from each other. Uh, and I became convinced that scientific thinking was really at the core of the Toyota way. I'm Tracy O'Rourke. And I'm Elizabeth Swan. And we're from the Just In Time Cafe, and welcome to our podcast. At the cafe, we wrestle with tough questions, talk to thought leaders, discuss great books, and get insights from lean Six Sigma practitioners. We let you in on helpful apps, we bring you the news, and we challenge the status quo so you can build your problem-solving muscles. So Elizabeth, it's awesome to be back in the cafe. What's on today's menu? Today's highlight is our interview with Jeffrey Liker. We're gonna to talk to him about his recent second edition to the iconic bestseller, The Toyota Way. And we're gonna find out why he's just a guy who can't say no. <laughs> Far in the news segment, you're gonna tell us about how UC San Diego Health got together with the San Diego Padres with the goal of getting the entire city vaccinated. And for Q&A, we'll answer a question about the impact of COVID on workplace productivity, good or bad. It's a great day at the cafe, Tracy. Yes, it is. Up next, it's in the news. So vaccination superstation hit 100,000 vaccines in three weeks. That is some serious momentum, Tracy. Yes, it is. UC San Diego Health has partnered with our hometown baseball team, the Padres, to create a vaccination superstation at Petco Park. They've administered about 5,000 vaccines a day is how they're, it's roughly their pace. There's roughly 300 volunteers required to run four shifts. So not every volunteer has to have a medical background. So that's good news. There's openings for runners, observers, and volunteers to check in people. They're hoping to attract about 50% of their volunteers from outside of UC San Diego Health for these positions. Right now, they're about 30%. So they are looking for more volunteers. I recently signed up to volunteer and I discovered a huge perk volunteers get the vaccine, which is great. Lily Angelosi of UC San Diego Health took me on a Gemba tour of their setup and introduced me to Edgar Rodriguez and Lydia Aikida, the commanders of the operation. And guess what, Elizabeth? What? They are both black belts and they agreed to come to the cafe podcast to tell us how they've incorporated lean six sigma into the design of their operation nice get tracy i'm psyched for that one and i'm really really jealous of you sounds like a great model for others especially the part where volunteers get vaccinated so i'm going to suggest that to mit and that they get together with the red Sox so and let the volunteers get vaccinated and free tickets 
I like it. I want to do some of that on the East Coast too. I'm Elizabeth Swan, and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. In a short while, you'll get to hear our interview with Jeff Liker to find out about the release of the second edition of the Toyota Way and his opinion about technology as a solution. Next up, it's a question from one of our listeners. Has productivity decreased during COVID? Well, I'm sure there's a mixed bag of answers, but I would say generally, initially, yes. People had to spend time skilling up to become operational in a virtual environment. Organizations that weren't set up for virtual operation had a steep hill to climb. And I heard it was very painful for some organizations. So even those who had digital options in place had to ramp up to handle new venues and higher volumes. After months of getting over the initial hump and learning the basics of Zoom or Teams, it seems that productivity hasn't suffered. As a matter of fact, virtual teams have eliminated the waste of motion, going from meeting to meeting, having to reserve meeting rooms, having to fly to client locations. The waste of travel time is gone, although I think some people might think that was value add sometimes, especially if you got to fly to someplace really fun. But now people can focus on better ways to engage and meet virtually. And we've been active learners as instructors to bring things like mural to the forefront, breakout activities and exercises, fine tuning material to separate, separate out the light reading as assignments and spending time with application in the live instructor portion. What do you think, Elizabeth? I miss some of those flights, especially when they were to like great places like San Diego, where <laughs> you could get vaccinated if you're a volunteer. And uh, also, I, I got a lot of work done on flights. So I had a, a habit of doing that. Not that I can't get work done if I'm not on a flight, but there's definitely wasted time in airports. I'm not, and I'm not going to miss, uh, you know, ha having to wait or, or sit around for delays, but I'm with you. You know, we saw a flurry in March. People were trying to figure out which software to use and how to set up Zoom calls, but it's kind of leveled out. Uh, now everyone's kind of focused on the finer points like lighting, am I, am I you know, uplit, downlit, uh, ring lights, uh, ambient light. Uh, people having fun with virtual backgrounds. I'm on calls. It's not uncommon <laughs> to see people with pirate hats. Um, you know, figuring out where they can have some fun. Uh, we recently were on a call uh, with someone using a green screen, kind of schooling us, uh, taking it to another level. Uh, miss the face-to-face -face interactions. I will never not feel that lack. Uh, process walks, going to the Gemba, not the same, but uh, managing to set up workshops so they, you know, blend more with your schedule. Uh, you know, people can now attend conferences they couldn't go to before because the conference is virtual and they're breaking it up. You know, you can do some part of your day, go back to work. So it, it's opening venues for people. Uh, not, not, attend, not traveling means you could maybe do more of that. Um, it's tricky to teach with virtual whiteboards instead of flip charts. Um, but as you say, we're getting better at mural and we're finding 
you find there's new avenues with these apps uh, that aren't available to us. You know, there's, you can do polling, you can do things we couldn't easily do in a classroom. Uh, and it challenges us in a good way to be better educators. So I'm, I'm game for that. We can always do better. I agree. And you know, it's funny, we were just talking about how we feel more connected to the lean community during COVID yeah. than in the past. And I'm not really sure what that's about. I think there's more forums for connection now, mm -hmm. and we're taking advantage of those things. More people are moving online because they're kind of forced to, and it has created additional ways to connect with people. And I have really enjoyed that, but I'm with you, Elizabeth. There's nothing like going to a good conference and giving people hugs. I miss giving people hugs. And, and, and buying them cocktails. And you know, well, of course. <laughs> soon, Tracy, soon. Soon. I'm Tracy O'Rourke and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. We'll be hosting these monthly, so don't forget to subscribe. Coming up next, it's our featured guest, Jeffrey Laker. Not everyone knows what a lean icon Jeff is. Tracy, why don't you fill them in? Okay, I'm gonna try to do this in like under two minutes, which is going to be very hard because he has so many things to talk about. You can Jeffrey do this. Liker. What was that? You can do it. I could do it. So Jeffrey Liker has made significant contributions to the lean community. He is a professor emeritus of industrial and operations engineering at the University of Michigan. He's the owner of Liker Lean Advisors and a partner in the Toyota Way Academy. Dr. Liker has authored, are you ready for this? Bring 17 it. books. And one of those is the international bestseller, The Toyota Way, second edition. His articles and books have won him 13 Shingo Prizes for research excellence. In 2012, Jeffrey was inducted into the Association of Manufacturing Excellence Hall of Fame. And in 2016, he was inducted into the Shingo Academy Hall of Fame. But all of these accolades still can't save him from his children's sarcasm and criticism. Like many dads, he's humbled by his kids regularly. You nailed it. Welcome to the Just In Time Cafe, Jeff. How are you today? Doing just fine. Thank you, Tracy. Wonderful. So uh, we are here to welcome you and talk about your book. But first, I want to ask you, how are you enjoying retirement? You're supposed to be retired. What's going on? Uh, well, retirement for a lot of academics like me is a little bit different from other people. So uh, I have had sort of two lives. One is at the university where I taught courses, went to faculty meetings, and then was then outside the university. I was giving talks, writing books, uh, and doing things like this. And the part I retired from was the university part, going into the office, going to faculty meetings, uh, teaching classes, and you know needing to be there for certain hours. So that's freed up my schedule. But the other part of my life hasn't really changed much. So what are you doing as a newfound favorite hobby maybe uh, now that you've got all this spare time? Yeah, uh, mostly uh, 
so, social isolating with my family <laughs> in the COVID era. But uh, one thing I can do indoors is uh, classical guitar, which I've been, I, I played guitar from age 13 to 29, almost every day, uh, folk and rock. And I took classical guitar lessons for about a year. And then I decided about 10 years ago to uh, pick up guitar again. I had put it down uh, for most of my time in Michigan. I decided to pick it up again and focus on classical guitar. And I take lessons uh, from a professor of music uh, every every week and uh, do exercises and learn new pieces. And I pretty much work on that every day for about an hour or so. And then golf was something that was still allowed in the state of Michigan. It's outdoors and it's easy to social distance. So golf is the other sort of passion of mine. And I've done more of that than I, than I had been like this past season, I played about three times a week. Not bad. The, the guitar is inspiring. I played it a long time ago. You're giving me, you're giving me ideas. Well, I was planning on picking it up again when I got to retirement, which obviously in a sense never happens. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it was about 10 years ago, my son, who's a music, was a music major and he's a serious musician, plays all the string instruments and specializes in viola. And he uh, is the orchestra director for a high school. But anyway, he's very serious about music. And he was serious about golf as well. And he got me into golf. And then he asked me if I was ever gonna play guitar again. And I said, yeah, sometime. And he said, well, when? <laughs> and I said, well, sometime when I retire. And he said, well, what's preventing you from picking up a guitar and just playing? And I said, well, if I pick up my guitar and play, I'd like to uh, take lessons and I'd like to focus on classical guitar. And he said, okay. And then I, he stopped the conversation. And then I had an email from this guitar professor as as university offering to give me lessons uh, that same day. And I started <laughs> up from there. Uh, your son has good inquiry skills. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've got humble inquiry by your son. But if I was by my, yeah. on my own, I, I'm not sure I still would have started doing it. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. And thank you for that. So reflecting on the your latest venture the toyota way we want to know what compelled you to put out a second edition what's different well over the years i have thought about it as i learned specific new things and also had more experience uh particularly working with other companies that are not toyota and uh i realized that the toyota way was mostly toyota examples and there's some negative examples from other companies for contrast, but uh, so I would get an idea, say, you know, really be nice to include this case example to make this point, but it wasn't enough to really want to rewrite the book since it was still selling well and well-received. And yeah. I thought I could just as well mess it up as, as improve it. Uh, but uh, the, probably the biggest thing was uh, learning about Toyota Kata from Mike Rother and then having an endless set of, uh, coffee discussions at first where he was trying to convince me that he had come up with something worthwhile and different. And mostly I had been learning from Toyota and sort of my acid test is Toyota do, do it. And if they, and they didn't do Kata and Mike on his own seemed to make this up. So 
I was skeptical. But over time, it shifted to you know, having a real dialogue and learning from each other. Uh, and I became convinced that scientific thinking was really at the core of the Toyota way. And I had talked about it as part of problem solving, not in terms of scientific thinking, but problem solving was basically scientific thinking. So I had talked about it in one principle, but then I started to think, if you're not thinking scientifically, can you really do any of the principles? Would you really have a well thought out long-term strategy mm. with a vision? Uh, and I've emphasized in the new edition that it's long-term systems thinking. So part of having a long-term strategy and vision is that you realize the world is very complicated mm. and changing all the time and everything's interconnected. So your vision is a direction, but you don't get to the vision simply by implementing it. <laughs> There's like nothing to implement. You want to be the best mobility provider in the world uh, while uh, improving the planet. What do you implement? Well, let's do in year one, we'll improve the planet. And year two, we'll become the best mobility provider forever. So there's nothing to really do. Uh, but it gives you a direction so you can judge what you're working on in regard to that direction. You know, is it getting me, is it, helping me is it off am i got it getting off direction so uh then the way you get to the direction is through uh a lot of trial and error and learning because it's a complex system and you don't know what's going to happen when you implement something when you implement what you think is a solution and it may turn out completely different than you expect so without that systems thinking uh first of all you wouldn't think about your your direction in terms of how it impacts the whole global system, the world, and different parts of the system, like we need to develop the culture in a certain way to get the outcomes we want. And second of all, uh, you wouldn't have the uh, perseverance and passion to just keep trying and trying and trying and working toward the vision. So every part of the model uh, processes are often thought about as oh, if they're like physical things that we can insert you know, insert A and B into B and I get this result. You insert Kanban into the system and I get less inventory and then I get lowered cost or I get on-time delivery to customers. And again, that's not systems thinking. That's a simple linear cause and effect and the world doesn't work that way. But if you're not thinking scientifically, you will assume that when I insert A into B, I'll get C and if C improves somewhat when you do a bunch of things, including A, you'll just assume that what you did caused the result you want, which may or may not be true. So overall, uh, it was uh, such a different take on the Toyota way that I felt that was a reason to, to, to rewrite the book. So it's Mike Rother's fault. It's Mike Rother's <laughs> fault. I mean, he, he actually was, trying to convince me. He's, he's took the, he didn't think I should write the book. He thought I should uh, try something else. And he specifically wanted me to write a, a case study book about Tredicott examples. Uh, but uh, I chose to rewrite the book. So, but he, without realizing it, he had kind of influenced me in this direction. Without realizing it, I think he realized what he was doing. Uh, so tell me, tell us a little bit about the history and your relationship with Mike Rother, because I know you guys go pretty far back. Well, he was my student. He was a master's student. And you, there's 
say three types of master's students. One thing at Michigan, we usually don't pay a lot of attention to master's students. We pay more attention to PhD students. And there's three types of master's students. One type basically ignores you and you ignore, ignore them. They come to your class, they get their grade and they're, they're, they're gone. Uh, another kind is interested in learning from you and spends time trying to get to know you. Hopefully they might get some research funding and they're pretty subservient and you're kind of the big, the big macha and, you know, and they're the, the student. And then the third type is uh, somebody who piques your interest and gets to know you and almost acts like a peer and they are pushing back on your ideas which is Mike Rother. There aren't many of them, but when they come along, they could be a nuisance, but that's the students that I would learn the most from. So Mike was somebody who always had his own ideas, but he, he kind of knew what he wanted from me, and kind of used me toward his ideas. But uh, so for example, at first he was uh, interested in lean, he was interested in learning about continuous improvement, but he wanted to learn by doing. So uh, I would ask him, say, to get involved in some extracurricular activity. And he'd say, Jeff, I'm busy at the Gemba. <laughs> I'm spending all my extra time in factories at the Gemba. And I really don't want to be distracted. So, so I couldn't get him to do what I wanted. But he was doing the right thing. Uh, and then I helped get him a job at a not-for-profit. And he created continuous improvement user groups, which were sets of companies learning from each other. And then he kind of got felt constrained by the company and asked if he could work for me part-time at my program at University of Michigan and uh, and also do his own consulting. And in that time, he I, I also had hired John Shook. So he and John Shook connected and ended up writing Learning to See through LEI. Uh, and then uh, finally, they both left and went their own ways. Uh, and I didn't see him a lot after that either. Him a lot after that, you know, periodically we'd get together, and it was a lot of years. It was over a decade of not seeing Mike uh, when he surfaced with Tredicata. You know, he had the book and he wanted to meet with me and give me a signed copy, and then he began the process of selling me on the book and the ideas. And I guess you know one benefit was I was then started set to sell to talk about his book and sell the book, but. The, the reality is that we were, I was learning a lot and we were he was learning a lot. I was pushing back on a lot of ideas and uh, we both learned, ended up learning together. Uh, and that included not only the kata, which is very specific, follow these four steps and have a coach and have a storyboard and practice these routines. But he also had been reading in neuroscience about how we master skills and about biases that prevent us from seeing reality as it is and make us assume we know things we don't know, and uh, cognitive psychology and some popular books. Uh, and he would send me a video. He, I just got one today that was really good. Uh, and he would send me a video and he would uh, say, Jeff, I think you might think this is fun. And he'd send me an article. And that would cause me to sometimes reread old material, old books from social psychology and sociology, which was my background before becoming a professor of engineering. So uh, I was kind of reconnecting with some of my uh, roots in the past, which I didn't expect to do when I was retired. I thought I was 
done learning. Um, so it all kind of, it all has worked out quite well. Oh, you're never done learning, are you? Are we? Well, whether I wanted to, whether I choose to, I'm not somebody that has a big vision and, you know, and I, you know, and deliberately want to learn for life and I'm very passionate about it. It just seems to happen. <laughs> uh, in a good way. Yeah. And good. so just out of curiosity, what's the most interesting reaction you've gotten to the second edition so far? I mean, I'd like, it'd be fun to say that somebody thought it was totally off the wall and I ruined the original or something, but that hasn't happened. Uh, so, so far the reactions have been very positive and not, not surprising that people like it. They think it's an improvement. They, I, another thing I added to the book was a discussion of industry 4.0 and the internet of things. And that came about because I had visited Denso in Japan to his largest supplier and they, they chose to talk about the Internet of Things and the importance of new digital technologies. And they showed examples of what they're doing. And I decided I wanted to include that, but I hadn't taken detailed notes at the time. So I contacted Denso in the US and they put me in touch with a guy at the Denso plant in Battle Creek and said he's our a North American leader for this new digital stuff. And his name is Raja. And I connected with Raja and interviewed him and was fascinated by what he said. And he invited me out and said I could show you all these things and we're actually doing them. And uh, that completely changed my view of Industry 4.0, which up to that point had been pretty negative, that it was basically a set of tools in search of a solution. And executives seemed to get very excited about digital technologies. And I think it has to do with non-scientific thinking that in a very simple cause and effect way, they think if I implement this, I'll get this. And if I implement this new digital solution across the whole company and I've got 50 plants and tens of thousands of people and I can't train them all one by one, but if I implement this new digital technology, I'll get these great results. And I know how to buy stuff and I know how to get people in IT to implement it. So I can just sort of push a button and that's, that happens. Uh, and it becomes a fairly mindless introduction of the technology. I've never seen a case where the technology works the way it's expected to work. And I've no. never seen a case where it is implemented on the timeline that's promised by the vendors. It's always like two or three years uh, over budget and over time. And, uh, and it never really works the way they expect. Uh, and industry 4.0, the idea is this is a new paradigm, right? There was industry 3.0, whatever that was. I don't know, maybe that's lean. I don't know what it is, but there was something called industry 3.0 and now there's industry 4.0 and now we're beyond industry 3.0. So let's say industry 3.0 was lean and operational excellence. And it was very primitive because it involved these clunky things called human beings uh, you can't program. And now we have the computer version, which is the modern age. And that made absolutely no sense to me. Uh, and I, you know, again, it seemed like the easy thing to do, the silver bullet. And in fact, every IT company I know of talks about solutions. They're not partners in discovery. 
they're bringers of solutions and you just have to pay them and you get the solutions. Uh, so that's relatively easy. So anyway, that was not the case with Denso, as you might expect, a Toyota group company. They've been steeped in the Toyota production system for many years. Uh, so the I put that, that story into uh, the technology principle, uh, principle uh, eight. And in that principle, I, I talk about how technology should support people in improving processes. Uh, so it's an aid to the human rather than a replacement for thinking. And that's the way Toyota thinks about it. Uh, and then the question is, what can this technology do to help people improve processes? And the answer is it can provide useful information in a easy to understand format, if it's done correctly. And uh, and there are some cases where you can automate certain things with AI that are very simple. But in most, ca most cases, what the AI can do is to tell you there's a problem. And then you need to go and investigate and follow all the problem solving, scientific thinking, you know, root cause analysis, all those methods we teach come into play, except you have better data and the problems are called to your attention more quickly, more accurately. And one software company that Denzo works with that makes, it's called Drishti, Drishti Technologies. They make what they call motion technology and it's a video camera on a manual worker. And it will tell you that you're not following the standard work. And we'll call out deviations. It will tell you what the bottleneck is. Uh, and it will generate a, what we call a Yamazumi chart or a work balance chart and show you all the different elements and how much time each takes. And, and you can look at thousands of cycles instantly and you can find bottlenecks. Then you can go back to that bottleneck and watch the video of what the person was doing. Wow, so that's impressive. You never could do that. You know, you could, you'd have to have somebody standing with a stopwatch and madly entering data all the time to do that. Uh, so then, you know, from a Toyota point of view, uh, the danger of that is it stops people from thinking. It stops continuous improvement. The computer does it now. So we just wait for the computer to tell us what to do. But in the culture created by both Denso and Toyota, it's very natural for them to uh, use the data to identify the gap and then start problem solving. And the work groups on the shop floor are doing that all the time anyway. And often it's because I, the worker pulled the andon and then I keep track of how many andon pulls there were. And if there's a lot of andon pulls, I go back and try to understand that problem. I don't have any record of what happened that caused the problem. So this is doing what they're trained to do and what fits in the culture, but with better real-time data. And I don't, I, since Denso adopted it, Toyota's been adopting it more on an experimental basis and they're pretty excited about the technology, but they're moving very slowly. And I'm pretty certain what we'll see in the future is people are still using stopwatches and they're still uh, evaluating jobs, but they're, th those, that's largely for development of the people skills. But then the data they use, a lot of it will come from this kind of technology instead of the Andon to uh, 
focus problem solving then on solving the problem rather than collecting a lot of data and manually collecting data and making charts and graphs. So there is kind of a risk that you spend so much time with the observations and data that you don't have much time to solve the problem. So that's what Denso looks at it as. It's, uh, they, they say, we don't want people collecting data for days and then starting to solve a problem. We'd like to, them to solve the problem the same day the problem occurs. So anyway, that's a good fit between, and one of the guys at Toyota that's responsible for this calls it TPS plus AI. So he sees AI as adding something to TPS, but if you don't have TPS, you just have AI. And then what are you gonna do with the data? You know, you don't even have standard work, but you're getting all this, these signals that there's deviations from the standard work. Well, you never really established standard work to begin with. Uh, so uh, the, it's, it's interesting because the companies that adopt the technology may in fact have a lean program and say, this is great. This is now software that's compatible with lean. And then they'll introduce the technology, the IT people introduce the technology as a solution mm -hmm. and they won't get the TPS part. Uh, so they won't get the benefit, but it turns out that even if a traditional engineer, like an industrial engineer, looks at this data and finds the bottleneck and then focuses on solving the bottleneck and can see what's happening, there's, then they improve. And that's enough to make improvement. It's just not the level of improvement you can get when all your workers are problem solvers and you're solving problems every day. So anyway, uh, that, that's how it, I, so, it's a, so I put in a TPS way of looking at the, this technology into that principle, which I think is useful, uh, but there's a lot of interest in that. There's a lot of people that all that they care about is that I'm now writing about how you use digital technology within a TPS environment, within a lean environment, because the companies are going into industry 4.0 fast and furiously, and they'd like to know how to connect that to lean. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of chasing the bus, you know, uh, and I'm not telling them how to do that, you know, my, cause that's not, you know, what they should be doing, but that's what they're interested in is kind of a silver bullet solution for how you blend lean with, with, uh, these new AI methods. And definitely it's a very interesting time. There's a lot of evolution happening with automation Elizabeth and I attended a conference when we were able to, and there was a presentation on robotic process automation, and I'd never seen it applied to a transactional process before, you know, having a bot on your desktop and hmm. never seen that before. Um, and, you know, it was very useful. And, you know, my fear is we, we do see people jumping to automation and it's usually not solving the problem so it's nice to hear of this balance of, you know, technology evolving, but still capturing the essence of problem solving and the learning cycle. And um, so that's pretty exciting. And so I think um, technology is really going to obviously keep evolving and it'll be really interesting to see what happens and how it makes people's lives better. And hopefully they don't lose, as you, as you talked about, the problem solving piece. Right, right. So is that what's capturing your attention these days? I mean, we did say that, you know, that you, you did retire 
you still wrote a book and you're still involved in, obviously Mike Rother and you two um, are involved in Kata. I believe you're gonna be attending the KataCon coming up. Is that right? I'll be, yeah, I'll be speaking at that. Good. So- With pajamas. What, what's capturing your attention these days? Um, where are you spending your time? You know, is it, is it really in the Kata community now? Well, physically, I'm here in most my house most of the time, but uh, <laughs> I I'm at all over. I've I've been doing uh, lean posts for Lean Enterprise Institute, so I've been in touch with the Lean Enterprise Institute, and I have colleagues of various sorts, former students or whatever, and they're out in companies and they want advice. So I'm having calls with their uh, their bosses and. Uh, so I'm still doing some work with individual companies on an advisory basis. And, uh, and I have been involved with Drishti with this company that's made the motion technology and AI. Uh, and I also am involved with the Kata community and they are helping to sell my book for one thing. So there, but there's opinion leaders in different countries who are very active with Kata who have been, who've asked me to do uh, webinars say that they can show locally to their, their network and that's and my book since it talks about kata in the context of the total way they're interested in selling my book to their clients and their network uh so i think it's some blend of the uh of practitioners of continuous improvement operational excellence lean and an organization like lei and then also the kata community so i feel like i'm a well situated to be at the intersection of those worlds. This is sort of a big question, but what drives you to do what you do? Uh, it's interesting uh, and it's intrinsically motivating. Uh, there's a book about grit by Professor Duckworth at- I read that. Burton. Yeah, it's a good, great book. And I saw her give a presentation yesterday and she was talking about Tom Brady as an example of grit. And she talks about grit as having a vision, a direction, and a passion. And then you move, work toward that every day and you never give up. So it's almost a obsessive determination to keep on working toward your vision. And she used Tom Brady as an example of someone who has that grit. And you know, so you would ask why Tom Brady's met, married to a supermodel who's probably a billionaire in her own right, and he's probably a billionaire, and uh, he's got kids, and he seems happy with them. And so and he has a lot going on in his life. He has a business to sell his products and diet. And you, know, you think, why would he bother coming back for to win a yet another Super Bowl? And I think the answer in uh, simple cause and effect terms, it tends to, we tend to, uh, reduced to extrinsic motivation. We assume everybody does everything because they want to make money or because they can win the, the, the partner that is good looking or that, you know, they, there's something they want in the world. In order to get that, they have to do this. And uh, not everybody's motivated by the material world and people with grit are not as motivated by the material world and material rewards. They, they need stuff and it's kind of nice to have stuff, but that's not the driving motivation. It's something else. And it becomes intrinsic rather than extrinsic 
and it's some sort of passion. And uh, then she suggests in her book, you know, various things you can do. And almost everybody in organizational development, organizational change, whatever field it is, uh, says you need a vision, you need a purpose. That's, uh, and you should be able to state your pur 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 purpose in 10 words or less. Mm. And the purpose doesn't change very much. And personally, I kind of feel like coming up with a purpose statement is a uh, after the fact justification for why I do what I do. It doesn't feel real to me. You know, so my, so I want to be a good human being, a good parent, a good husband, and do the best I can do with that. And that seems to make sense to me as, as something that drives me. Uh, I seem to you know, enjoy learning and benefit from learning. Uh, beyond that, I just, I seem, it feels to me like I do a lot of reactive stuff. Like you asked me to do this webinar and I said, yes, so I'm doing it. Now that I said I was gonna do it, I'm trying to do a reasonable job. Uh, but beyond reacting to stuff, it doesn't seem to me like I'm working toward a very clear purpose or vision. Somehow it's refreshing. Say it again, Tracy. Yeah, writing books. I don't know. Once I, and often those books happened like the Toyota Way happened because an editor contacted me from McGraw Hill and he had a series uh, of Way books at that point. He had the Disney Way and the McKinsey Way and the GE Way and he thought a good next book would be the Toyota Way. So to him, the Toyota Way was just filling in the next blank. And somehow he asked around and got my name and uh, sent me an email. Now, when I saw that, it's, it made sense to me very quickly. You know, so I had been writing a lot of academic articles to get tenure and then eventually full professor. And I had written Becoming Lean, which was a so, sort of uh, practitioner-oriented book. And I had written uh, an article in the Harvard Business Review and a couple articles in Stall Management Review, which were more practitioner-oriented or executive-oriented. And I had improved my skills at writing for ordinary people who are not academics. And I also had been studying Toyota and I would be focused on a specific article I want to write, say on product development. And, but in the process, I had learned a bunch of stuff besides this very specific focus of that article. And in addition to that, I then had opportunities to do consulting. I worked with John Shook and Mike Rother on the Ford production system at Ford. So I had really good opportunities to be involved in big, important uh, transformation projects. And so I, and I felt, and when I, as soon as I read that email, I said, I have all this knowledge and experience that I'm not using in these articles I'm writing. Wouldn't it make sense to try to just put together all the things I've learned in one place and in addition to that, uh, I don't have to be peer reviewed. <laughs> you know, I can write the book the way I want to write it. You know, so for example, in peer review, every time you write more than three words, you need a citation. You know, who said that or you know, where did I get that information or fact? And in the total way, I could write whatever I wanted and I didn't have to prove I was right about every sentence. Uh, and I could also write in a more of a storytelling narrative way which was more freeing. So it made sense to me and it connected with 
with a direction that made sense to me and what I'd been working on. But I didn't set out to write a best-selling business book. That wasn't my purpose or agenda or anything like that. It's just in reaction. And then after I wrote that, then I was uh, I was asked to write the field book. And then I wanted to, to work with somebody who had worked at Toyota and had hands-on experience learning from one of the Toyota mentors. And that ended up being David Meyer. And then after writing the field book, David said, you know, I could take any one of these chapters and write a whole book about it. Maybe we should write some more books. And we got the idea of writing a process book, a problem-solving book, and a people book. And that led to Toyota Talent. And then we kind of ran out of steam. Uh, but that, then I wrote uh, the Toyota Way to Continuous Improvement to pick up the process and people. Because uh, in that case, I had already sort of promised McGraw Hill we'd do three books. And I only gave him one. So I thought it'd be nice to give him at least one more. So I gave him another book. Uh, wow. And, so nice of you. And then while I was doing that, uh, Gary Convis, who was the original plant manager of NUMI, and he became the first president of Toyota Motor Kentucky, uh, first American president, not Japanese president. And then he became the head of manufacturing, which is, again, unusual. as always a Japanese who was the vice president of manufacturing for North America. Gary Thomas got that position. So he's somebody I'd followed. He'd spoken at conferences that we had organized at Michigan, and I had greatly respected. And he contacted me saying he's retiring in three years, and he'd like to write a book with me, if, if possible. My son asked me about the book, and I told him what it was about. And he said, Dad, do you think that people really were interested in the history of how Toyota brought manufacturing to America? Is that really what people are interested in? Wouldn't they be more interested in learning something useful that they can use for themselves? Uh, so I explained there's a lot of people interested in Toyota and their history. And, uh, and also, we're going to talk about a bunch of other things like leadership. And he said, oh, leadership. That sounds like a good idea. I think people would like to learn about that. Maybe you should write a book about leadership. So I ended up writing the Toyota Way to Lean Leadership. Yeah, kids, they have a way of doing that, making you humble. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're reactionary. I think you're just a guy that can't say no. I <laughs> think. <laughs> well, I can say no to a good idea. You know, the ideas usually seem like good ideas or not. And writing a book with Gary Kahn does seem like a good idea. And then eventually writing about leadership made it made sense because that was over time I had come to more and more come to the conclusion that the real key to lean is leadership. And Toyota realizes that it took me time to figure that out. But when they come to cut to America, what do they do? They find a guy like Gary Convis. And then they invest incredible amounts of time and resources and money in turning Gary into a Toyota leader. As I realized they need American leaders who lead in the Toyota way. They realize the Toyota way is something distinctive and not everybody thinks this way. They also believe that it's possible to develop a person so that they do think and act this way. They also realize it takes mentorship, coaching, day by day, and direct experience, and then time for it all to come together, which is really the, the thinking behind Toyota Kata as well. Mm -hmm. And that's all intuitive to them. And they don't have a, their own book on how to de develop a Toyota leader. 
they talk a lot about team members and team member development and the team members do Kaizen and they, they do think very highly and value team members, but yeah, they put a lot of resources into developing leaders. And that's because leaders unlock the potential of team members. And without leaders, team members on their own don't you know, poke about and happen to discover Kanban and just in time and uh, mistake proofing and they don't develop their own standard work that they share with others that they're continuously improving. None of the things Toyota wants to happen are gonna happen naturally. Leadership, that's an entire another podcast. You're gonna, I'm gonna give you something to react to. We're gonna have you back. <laughs> Talk about leadership. Oh, and I also want you to invite Mike Rother with you next time too. So mm. about that. And I you can't say no. You can't say no. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> He's just said no to me plenty of times. Yeah. We want to, we really appreciate you coming to the cafe to talk to us, Jeff. We really enjoyed talking with you. And if you ever get out to San Diego to play golf, you should call me. I want okay. you to react to that when, when you're in San Diego. <laughs> okay. Love San Diego. <laughs> Wonderful. It right. goes for Cape so, Cod too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful place. I, haven't been there. I went to Northeastern University in Boston and while I was there, I visited Cape Cod a couple of times, but haven't since. See, San Diego's not the only place there, Tracy. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Thank so, you, Jeff. Enjoy your COVID times, and uh, we hope to see you live soon, but we'll see you at Katakan at least. Thanks for coming Thank to the cafe. Good to see you both. Take care. If you haven't already signed up, definitely sign up for Elizabeth's webinar on March 18th. It's titled How Lean Six Sigma Problem Solvers Can Hone Their People Skills. Also, stay tuned for information about an upcoming guest webinar from a virtual whiteboard pro from Scotland. He's a mural pro and he's got an awesome accent. Is he going to wear a kilt to the webinar? Yes, he is. We require that. Yep. And tune in for next month's episode where we interview Edgar Rodriguez and Lydia Aikida from UCSD Health. Edgar is a practice manager and a service line leader at UC San Diego Health. And Lydia is the associate chief operations officer for the UC San Diego Health Physicians Group. If you're looking for guidance on becoming better at Lean Cultural Transformation. Come join Tracy and me for our interactive course at UC San Diego. The Lean Six Sigma Leader starting next month. Stay tuned for all the news by joining our community at the JIT Cafe. That's jitcafe.com. We're so happy to be back and we're thrilled that you joined us. The Just In Time Cafe was not the same without you. No, it wasn't. And we hope you enjoyed your jolt of lean caffeine.